Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. How has the invention of the light bulb affected the health of humans and other animals? Lights are really messing up uh, the love lives of fireflies. And how did the simple switchboard behind a telephone system lead us to the nearly incalculable switches that flawlessly light up your cell phone? And what are those cell phones doing to our brains? If you're reading a book, you're in the deep end of the pool. But the internet is more like a wading pool on the shallow side. And what motivated camera companies to properly record dark skin after a hundred years of being calibrated to light skin? Was it the black community's rally for consideration? No, it was commerce. Of course, it was money. Money talks. It's all about greed. Chocolatiers would say that we cannot see the difference between milk chocolate and dark chocolate with your film. I'm Kion Wolf, Dr. Anissa Ramirez, author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another, answers those questions and more on Audacious. After the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. When you were growing up, you probably heard about famous inventors. Maybe you thought they were brilliant, rigorously trained, confident, capable, and that their inventions advanced humankind through and through. But Dr. Anissa Ramirez spent the last five years writing a book that strips away those presumptions. In The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another, she paints portraits not of how inventors settled questions of the limits of technology, but of how much further we still have to go. This hour, you'll hear about how these big thinkers so often solved only the problem directly in front of them how other tinkerers, brainstormers, and everyday people made those inventions more equitable. I wanted to start our conversation at the end of her book. Here she is reading the final line of the epilogue. These pages illustrate not only that everyone has an admission ticket to create, but that everyone must also critically critique their creations. Such a thoughtful analysis of the impact of inventions benefits society, not just because it's an entertaining cerebral exercise, but because when coupled with action and social change, it has the potential to help society transcend its condition and favorably further this alchemy of us. Everyone has an admission ticket to create. I wondered when she felt like she got that ticket and what she was like as a little kid. I was a nerdy little African-American girl growing up in New Jersey in a working class neighborhood that wasn't particularly good. It was a little on the rough side. And uh, just kind of stood out because I really loved science and wasn't one of the cool kids. But one of the things that kept me going is that I had a chemistry set. I had lots of books. I had my imagination. And I had television shows that excited me about science. So that was me uh, for the first couple of years of uh, the Ramirez, Anissa Ramirez life. Now, you liked Star Trek, the one with Spock, of course. Absolutely. Uh, there is no other. <laughs> <laughs> and you also, there was a TV show that you used to watch that really snagged your attention, right? Really changed things for you. Absolutely. So I was a big fan of PBS, Electric Company, Sesame Street. All those shows really got to me. But there was a low production show called 321 Contact, which I absolutely loved. That show also had the best 
theme music. <laughs> I actually listen to it every now and then, and it's so inspiring. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's right. Contact is the secret, is the moment. It's so good. When everything happens, contact. As soon as I would hear that song, I would run to the television and just park in front of it. And on that show, there was a segment called The Bloodhound Gang, and it had a couple of kids, and one of them was an African-American girl, and she was solving problems with the rest of them. And I don't remember the rest of them. I remember her because when I saw her, I saw my reflection. Here is a African-American girl using her brain, and when I learned a little bit more about what she was doing, she was using her brain, she was doing science. I said, you know what? I think I want to do that. So that show, 321 Contact, really put me on the path to becoming a scientist. And so skipping ahead in your lifetime, you're an adult in academia, and you find this major that invigorates your curiosity, and it's called material science. Now, what if you and I were at a cocktail party, I would introduce myself. I'd say, hey, my name is Kayon. I'm a public radio talk show host. You would know exactly what that is. If you were to introduce yourself to me, how would you explain this? Well, if we're at a cocktail party, I would say, hey, Kion, um, I'm an Adam Whisperer. <sighs> Not Adam, A-D-A-M. No, no. Adam, as I'm a molecule whisperer. <laughs> I'm interested in learning about how atoms and molecules interact with each other. And then what I want to do is I want to convince them to do new things so I can build new things. So that's what a material scientist does. There was a professor when you were at Brown who said something that gave you kind of a fresh lens on seeing the world. What was it that he said? Well, I was sitting in uh, Introduction to Material Science, Engineering 41, back at Brown University. And this was a prerequisite course, and everyone was of the posture that it was going to be boring. And I was sitting there with the same posture. This is going to be boring. I just need to get through it. And then Professor L. Ben Friend said something that blew me away. He said, the reason why we don't fall through the floor and the reason why my sweater is blue and the, the reason why the lights work all has to do with the interaction of atoms. And if you can understand how they do that, you can get them to do new things. Now, when he said that, I stopped listening to him, which you should not do. You should always listen to your professor. But I stopped listening to him momentarily because I started seeing the world with a new framework. Uh, the pencil in my hand was able to make a mark because carbon atoms were sliding past each other. And my shoes were comfortable because the molecules were shaped sort of like springs, which brought a comfort to my feet. And my glasses, my glasses helped my eyes see because they bent light to my distant retinas. This guy blew me away because he gave me a way to see the world in a new way. And that was what put me on the road to becoming a material scientist. On the other hand, at Brown, you also had some experiences that weren't exactly inspiring, yeah? Yeah, I'm anti-introductory science course. I realized that as I was writing this book. And I've met many people who had dreams of becoming doctors or becoming scientists or veterinarians. And they're like, I just couldn't get past fill in the blank, some science course, organic chemistry, calculus, something. And I was almost one of those casualties too. Those introductory science courses really squeeze all the fun out, which I was aware that science had from my days at 321 Contact. But for some reason, they're in the business of weeding out students. That's one of the reasons why I wrote The Alchemy of Us, to give people another chance or another opportunity to see science and to have science in their life. Yeah, you were saying in the book, you know, the professor said, look to your left, look to your right. They won't be here. 
And then again, later, look to your left, look to your right. They won't be here as is, as if it's this club that only some people should be allowed into. It, it makes no sense. We live in a world where we need people to know science. Not everybody needs to become a scientist, but we need to be aware of things that are around us, technologies that are coming our ways. If you have people who are nurturing the next generation of scientists and, and have this point of pride where they're in the business of weeding people out, well, we have a disconnect between the nation's needs and how science is actually being taught. I'd like to skip ahead to Yale, uh, where you're teaching mechanical engineering, and you're the only black professor among your cohorts. And that wasn't exactly fulfilling either, huh? Well, it wasn't unfamiliar. I was a little spoiled. So during my path, I didn't really see my reflection in the sciences. Uh, I was fortunate that I had teachers that were geeky and I resonated with them, but you know they weren't necessarily the same demographic. Before I was at Yale, I was at Bell Laboratories, and there were lots of women and lots of people of color who were scientists there, and it was actually, it was paradise. Unfortunately, Bell Laboratories went through a contraction, and so uh, I decided to take the leap and go into academia. And when I landed at Yale, I went back to the world that I had known before, which is not seeing my reflection. And what I like to say is most of the folks at Yale were male, pale, and had gone to Yale. And one thing that happened that lent itself to you developing how you wanted this book to go was when you tried glass blowing. Yeah. So I have this tradition that every year I try and do something crazy, take a crazy class. One year I decided to take glass blowing classes. There are there's a glass blowing shop not too far from me, a couple of cities over, and I signed up for a couple of classes. Now, there was one particular day that I went to glass blowing class and I was kind of in a, I was in a not so good mood. There was a lot of layoffs at work. And so there was a lot of crying and hugging. And so I was very raw by the time I got to glass blowing class. I made a huge piece and I did things I hadn't done before, which is I swung the piece to make it longer and I rotated the piece to make it wider. I was having a blast. I was just totally lost in creating this new huge vase. Now I had one more step. All I had to do was put the vase into the furnace for a flash of heat, pull it out, and, uh, and then I can remove it from my pipe. But because I was having such a good time and I was talking to my friend about this piece and how well it's going, I lost track of time and when I took the piece out, it was incandescent orange and about to fall off. I did everything I could to make sure that it didn't fall off but eventually just fell to the ground and my instructor came and he saved it, he attached it to the pipe, and we were able to fix it. Now, when all that passed, and it was cooling down and I was calming down, I actually thought a little bit about what had happened. I was shaping the glass, not just because it was glass blowing class, but I was learning some new things too. But it was also shaping me because I came in a very, very bad mood, and then I was leaving that class in a very good mood. And this is what actually inspired me to write The Alchemy of Us, to look at how humans and matter transform one another, just like that glass-blowing accident. So one of the central themes of this whole book is technology is never neutral. And I want to talk about chapter four of The Alchemy of Us. It's called Capture, and it's about photography. Tell me about it. Well, in the chapter Capture, and I use the term capture because I want to show how this tool of photography has been used to capture images, but it also captures culture. And so it starts off with Edward Mybridge, who you might know, but he's an eccentric, murdering photographer who was given the task by Leland Stanford to take a picture of a horse. 
Leland Stanford had a bet going on with his very, very rich buddies that when a horse ran, that at one point, all four legs were off the ground, but they had no proof. And so Stanford asked Mybridge to take a picture of this. Now, this was very difficult to do because taking pictures of something rapid was very, very difficult. So Mybridge was able to achieve this by having several cameras in a row and having them snap a fraction of a second. And he was able to show, actually, that a horse does run without its legs on the ground. Unsupported transit is what it was called back then. Now, it ends up that photography started to become big business. And when it was kitchen chemistry, when you and I could make it by just lathering certain chemicals on a glass plate, you and I could take a picture of ourselves without problems. However, when it became a manufactured product, it was tailored to render certain demographics better than others. Essentially, if you had lighter skin, you came out well with camera film. And if you had darker skin, as I do, you didn't come out as well. Now, it ends up that in the 1960s, there were some African-American mothers that wrote a camera manufacturer to say, you know, I think there's something wrong with the film. When their children brought home their class photo, they noticed that the white children came out fine, but the African-American children actually came out very, very dark. And so these African-American mothers said there must be something wrong with the film. You see, there was a bias built into the film, which had been undetected because before the 1960s, schools were segregated. So white children were taking pictures separately from black children. And even though the film had a bias, it, it was hard to detect. But when these children were photographed together, that's when the bias became present. So let me guess, the camera manufacturers heard these calls from these black mothers and said, oh my God, you're right. Let's change everything, right? No, that is not what happened. Can you believe it? I they, can't believe it. I can't. <laughs> I know, I can't <laughs> believe it. I'm like, really? Who it, would have the power to enact some technological change if not these black mothers? Well, it was commerce. Of course, it was money. Money talks. It's all about green. It wasn't until furniture manufacturers and chocolate makers reached out to the film producer and said, look, we can't see in our advertising photos the different hues of different types of woods. And the chocolatiers were, would say that we cannot see the difference between milk chocolate and dark chocolate with your film. You have to fix it. And so that is what caused the film to be modified and to be able to render dark chocolates, dark woods, and eventually dark skin. And that overlaps us beautifully with American hero Caroline Hunter. She is an American hero. I, I certainly agree with you. Now, imagine that you're an African-American woman in the 1970s, and you're working for one of the best, most famous, most popular company in the country, in the world. That was Polaroid. Uh, they were sort of the apple of their time. Now, she was a chemist, and she was going to lunch with her friend Ken Williams, who is in the art department. And she sees on the bulletin board a mock-up of an identification card. It says, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. Now, these two look at each other and they're like, what? What has Polaroid got to do with South Africa? You see, these two knew that South Africa had an apartheid system. And they wanted to know what their employer had to do with, with South Africa. Because most of the news had said companies and countries should really cease and desist from operating in South Africa because of this, uh, this oppressive uh, government system. And so they went and talked to their management to see what was going on. And their management would said, well, if we have a presence and we don't really think we have a presence, it's not much. 
But Caroline and Ken actually researched. They went to their library and they found out that Polaroid had a presence and they actually had had a presence in South Africa since the late 30s. And what Polaroid was doing was that they were actually selling their film to South Africa. Each black South African had to carry with them a passbook. A passbook was a 20-page document which told officials where they could go, where they could not go, and at the heart of the passbook was a picture made by Polaroid. So Caroline and Ken did not think this was right, and so they went to do something about it. And that's when they flyered the campus, right? And this is obviously before you could have any sort of internet uh, protests, but this is before Facebook and Twitter. So they did what uh, activists would do at the time. They would put flyers everywhere. They had rallies. They also did what we do today, which is they brought it to national attention by using television and radio. It took seven years of activism. And also many universities started to divest from Polaroid and also South Africa. And that's what led to Polaroid removing themselves from South Africa and actually started the, the dismantling of the apartheid system. You also write in this chapter, technologies such as photographic film also captures the issues and beliefs and values of the times. And that makes me think about the HBO series Insecure, which has a mostly black cast. And besides it being a really fun, thought-provoking show, it's also known for how beautifully it lights its cast. And I read an interview with the director of photography for the show, Eva Berkovsky, and she says that she pairs reflective makeup with a polarizing filter, and she uses an LED screen to beautifully illuminate these actors. And it makes me happy that, you know, finally, black skin is being photographed in a better light, so to speak. But it's also like, it took this long. That's right. I mean, it was a problem, you know, in the 19th century, early 20th century, African Americans always felt that there was a problem with the photography. There were many photographers who were known that they had that skill to take pictures of, of African Americans because they would use lighting, as you saying, as you just said. So it's been a problem for some time. And if you have a largely African-American cast, uh, then that's one of the things that you have, to, you have to mitigate because the film, the technology has not been uh, designed to cover a large range. Man, it doesn't even stop there when you think about optics. Uh, you have, you've even experienced going to the bathroom and putting your hands under a, a motion sensor and it not reacting to you. Right. You know, I travel quite a bit and there's this airport on the East Coast that I have to remember that when I put my hand underneath the faucet, I have to open my hand so that the lighter side of my hand, my palm, is seeing the light detector so that it would know that my hand is there. Because if I do not do that, the light will, the, the water will not come out. And I've also experienced this with photography. I have a dear friend who, uh, you know, I'm African-American. She's white. We've known each other for 30 years. We're still trying to get a great picture together. One of us is going to come out really light or one of us is going to come out really dark. And we've tried, you know, you know, we're in different locations. It's the film. And now it's the pixels. So, um, so this has been an issue that I've felt on a personal level as well. That was Dr. Anissa Ramirez, author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. When we come back... If you had asked me a couple of years ago to give you a lecture on light bulbs, I would have said, this is on, this is off, thank you very much. But I didn't realize that there's actually a connection to human health and light. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back.
This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Look at the nearest light bulb. Is it sort of orangey? Sort of blue? Well, the color of that light bulb and the time of day that you're near it is already affecting your health. Dr. Anissa Ramirez is with me this hour. She's the author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And in Chapter 5 of her book, she shines a whole new light on how the invention of the light bulb came to be. She illuminates us on how the development of that invention has both moved us forward and held us and other animals back. She reintroduces us to Thomas Edison by way of Ansonia's own William Wallace. That's right. William Wallace really, poor William Wallace, he always gets dropped (laughs) out of books. Right. You lived you lived near where he was. Right. You didn't even hear about him. I lived two cities over and I never heard of him. And when you do see him, like if you read a biography of Edison, you'll see Wallace as a footnote. And so in The Alchemy of Us, I give Wallace his moment where I actually tell his story. He worked on an early form of electric light that Edison came to see. And that's actually what inspired him to look at making his incandescent light. Uh, We don't usually hear the story that way, but that's how it went. Right. He visited. He was inspired. It was all chummy. And then on his way out the door, he said, Wallace, I don't think you're going in the right direction. I'm going to beat you. So in this chapter about light, we get to learn a little bit about Edison as well. Uh, We get to see his personality and and he wasn't the nicest guy. Hmm. This chapter really opens our eyes, so to speak, to how artificial light is known to affect the human animal, especially those humans who are shift workers. That's right. If you had asked me a couple of years ago to give you a lecture on light bulbs, I would have said, this is on, this is off. Thank you very much. But I didn't realize that there's actually a connection to human health and light. We as humans have two modes. We have a daytime mode and we have a nighttime mode. In our daytime mode, we have a higher temperature, higher metabolism, and growth hormone flowing through our bodies. In our nighttime mode, all of those things are decreased. How the body knows what mode to be in, daytime mode or nighttime mode, depends on the light. If our eyes detect blue light, that puts us in daytime mode. And so when we don't see it, we go in nighttime mode. But unfortunately, most of the light that's around us are artificial lights, LEDs, compact fluorescents, computer screens, cell phones. They generate a lot of blue light. And that puts us in daytime mode most of the day and most of the night. And with that comes a body that's overstimulated by growth hormone. And so we're going to have a range of diseases. Now, it ends up that people who work at night underneath the electric lights They have been found to have a high risk for certain diseases, again, because they're in daytime mode. So this light, this very simple device, is shaping us. It's shaping our health. Yeah, we're taller now, and it's possible that there's an increased risk of cancer and heart disease as a result of this, yeah? That's right. So we're scientists say that we're slightly taller than our ancestors, and there's a lot of reasons to that, of course. There's nutrition, better water, uh, better medicines, but one of the factors is the artificial light. But also some epidemiologists said that because of the increase in the cancers, they're actually finding that the linkage is due to the artificial lights. Yeah, you were saying that blind women are at a lower risk for breast cancer? For breast cancer because they cannot detect blue light, so their bodies don't go into daytime mode. So that's the smoking gun to say, okay, we think that artificial lights are linked to our health. There's still lots and lots of work that needs to be done, but this goes to show you that this simple device is not so simple because our bodies are actually regulated by the light. What about the stars? I live in Hartford, so... When I look up at the sky, I can only see a few stars, and that's because of light pollution. But 
What have we learned about how our electric lights affect how we view the stars and how that in turn affects us? If you and I were to look at the sky right now, maybe we'd see 30 stars. But our ancestors used to see thousands. And we're so detached from the night sky and all of its beauty, it, be it became obvious in, the, in 1994 when there was a huge earthquake in California and all the power went out. So that glow that happens from the electric lights was now gone. And people looked up and they saw a strange band. And so with the few landlines that were working, they called the fire department and they called the police department. They said, you know, there's something in the sky. I think you ought to look into it. What they were seeing was the Milky Way. So this goes to show you how disconnected we are from the night sky, which is quite beautiful if you ever get a chance to see it. And I, I have to say, as an adult, it wasn't until I was an adult that I got to see the night sky. And it is like walking into the universe. But underneath the sky glow that happens with our streetlights, we don't see it. We don't feel like we're connected to something bigger than we are. Yeah, and you feel small when you can see the Milky Way, but when you can't, you don't. And so not only is this affecting our physical health, but it's affecting our sense of what it's like to be a human being. Absolutely. I mean, if you look into the sky, you it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. You just feel like you're part of something much, much bigger. But if you can't see it, you don't. So in The Alchemy of Us, I said, you know, long ago, the sky used to be a window, but today it's a mirror. Which brings us to fireflies, which you write about. I had no idea that fireflies are neither bug nor fly. They're beetles, and they are not reacting well to the evolution of human luminescence. Yeah, fireflies are not having a good time with all these lights. <laughs> what I found out uh, is that their numbers are diminishing. And it has to do with the fact that fireflies talk to each other with these flashes of light. And this is how they find each other. This is how they communicate to find love. So the scenario that's going on in your backyard is that there's a female firefly who's on a blade of grass and the male firefly flies about waist high and he will flash to her. He will indicate his, his gender and his species saying, hey, I'm a male, I'm a photonist green eye. I'm a male, I'm a photonist green eye. And if she likes what she sees, which is about half the time, she'll flash back and say, I like you. And then he'll drop like a rock to where she is and then we'll have future fireflies. But if we change that scenario and now we have a streetlight, the male firefly will come into your backyard, announce himself, I'm a male, I'm a photonist green eye. I'm a male, I'm a photonist green eye. Female firefly will look up. She won't see him, so she won't flash back. Less fireflies. If I could do that scenario one more time, this time, again, we have the streetlight. The male firefly announces himself. Female firefly looks up. She sees him. She's not happy with what she sees. Yeah, next to that streetlight. That streetlight is making, yeah, is messing up his game plan. See, female fireflies like bright lanterns because uh, that shows her that he has good genes. But in front of that streetlight, mm, that lantern is not looking so bright, so she won't flash back. So lights are really messing up uh, the love lives of fireflies. And uh, sea turtle hatchlings. Sea turtles, too. Sea turtles make a very important decision as soon as they're born. Uh, they know intuitively to go towards the light, which used to be the moon glow on top of the water. But now, with all the lights, it's the city that's the brightest thing. And so they make the wrong decision to go towards the city, which often is across a highway. So lights are really impacting the animal kingdom. Yeah, it's impacting our health, 
physically. It's it's impacting our mental health and the way we see ourselves. It's impacting the other animals on this planet. So, you know, when there was lead paint in our homes and we found out that's not good, we took care of it. And now there's no more lead paint in our homes. We know now the danger that this ever-present blue light is giving us. So what can be done on a broad scale to help all the people and all the animals that are affected? Well, I wasn't certain that a lot of people knew about what was going on. People knew, okay, blue light, bad, but didn't know exactly why. And so that's the reason why I include that in the alchemy of us. On a personal level, we can change our lights inside of our homes. So during the day, we should have bluer light, and at night, we should use a redder light. And this will allow us to be in daytime mode and nighttime mode. City lights should not be blue. They shouldn't be those blue LEDs as they are. I don't know if officials knew that uh, that was detrimental to our health. But going forward, the lights that we should use should not be those blue lights so that we can have better light hygiene in the evening. So I think that was the reason why I wrote that in The Alchemy of Us, to, to inform people so that we can make better decisions going forward. I was inspired when I read that chapter. I, I, I'd heard something about blue and red, but I wasn't sure. And, and blue is good in the morning. In fact, uh, I looked up online that, that you can get like a blue LED light, sort of like those sad seasonal affective disorder lights. And, and putting that thing on bright blue in the morning, that's really useful. But I'd also heard about how you can, in some computers mess with how blue or red the screen is. So sure enough, I've got my Connecticut public laptop at home and I searched blue light and this setting came up and it, I did it. And at first I was like, ooh, orange, eh, doesn't look awesome. But after a couple of minutes, I totally forgot about it. And then about an hour later, I undid it and it was like, whoosh, Whoa, this right. <laughs> really bright it's Really blue, bright, yeah. Really bright blue. And yeah. so I set it. It's got a scheduling feature, so at around sunset, good, it goes back to that red. And so all weekend as I was researching you, I've had it around sunset go to that more amber color. Great. And it's funny because now I don't even notice it Sweet. at all. Sweet. Yeah. And I, I have been sleeping. I mean, I, I should give it a little more time to experiment. Yeah, it's only been, what, two nights. But I haven't been sleeping worse. Good, good, <laughs> good. No, I, I changed the lights you know, by my, on my nightstand to be a redder light. And my brother, who I live with, he, for a while, had those yellow glasses on uh, when he was watching television. I, I don't think he does it as re religiously as he used to. But when I first told him, he was like, what? He went on Amazon immediately and got these glasses. And I've heard a lot of other people do the same thing. Um, but yeah, you should change the lights, certainly. Yeah. And one of the other solutions that you point out is uh, go for a walk in the morning. The sun. It's free. You get a little bit of exercise and you get that blue light. Blue light does other things, too. It also resets your clock. Our clocks, our body clocks are off about by 20 minutes. So we are 24.2 and the sun, the solar day is 24 hours. Uh, so it resets our clock, but it also gives us blue light so that we will go into daytime mode. So uh, it's good to get a walk. It's a free form of light and uh, connects us to nature and more importantly, puts us in daytime mode. And one of the cool things about your book is how much all these stories overlap with each other. So going for a walk can also clear your head, which leads us into chapter eight, Think. And that features a New Haven guy and a switchboard, which then springs us forward into the internet age that our <laughs> delicate three pound brains are steeping in right now. But it starts with poor Phineas Gage in 1848 and his terrible accident. Tell us about Phineas Gage. Yeah, Phineas Gage was a foreman for the railroad and uh, he had the dangerous job of 
putting charges where they would blast for the tiles for, for the railroad. He wasn't paying attention in this, in this case where there was some gunpowder. He, he would tap it down with his tamping rod. The tamping rod, which was made out of iron, scraped a rock, created a spark, and that tamping rod exploded. And it shot up through his head, behind his left eye, and behind his hairline, and thudded to the ground. Now, he survived. He actually, you know, after he passed out, he got up, put himself on a wagon with his friends, and went to see a a medical doctor. And he lived for about 11 years. But his friends would say that Gage was no longer Gage. What happened was his brain was changed. We now know that where he was injured was a part of his brain that shaped his personality. And so I talk about, in The Alchemy of Us, about how that unfortunate rod shaped Phineas Gage but actually, we are being shaped, too. It's not a rod, but it's the, our computers and the Internet. And these switches, which leaps us forward to the one and only Alexander Graham Bell. That's right. That's right. Alexander Graham Bell came to the Skiff Opera House in New Haven, and he wanted to show off his great telephone. He had someone who was located in Middletown, and what they were going to do is they were going to demonstrate that a voice could be transmitted through the telegraph lines to show off his telephone. When he had that voice come through on that stage, people erupted. They're like, what? This is amazing. This is the best thing ever, this telephone. And there was one gentleman in the audience. His name was George Coy. And he said, this is great. I know my next business. It has to do with this telephone. George Coy went to talk to Alexander Graham Bell and said, I would like to create a switchboard because in its incarnation, the telephone was no, was no grander than two cups and a string. Do you remember that long ago where you could talk? Yeah, I remember from Tom and Jerry cartoons or something. That's right. All right. So it was only those two people who could talk to each other. But with a switchboard, I could call the switchboard and the switchboard could then direct my call to the person I wanted to speak to. And George Coy created the first in the United States and he did that in New Haven. And so that switch put us on the path to more sophisticated switches for the telephone system, which allowed us to get to more sophisticated switches, which gave rise to the transistor. And the transistor is the heart of the computer. The heart of the computer came from the telephone. So historically, we have cave painting brains. We have (laughs) book brains, radio brains, TV brains, and now our squishy ever illuminated, again, this overlap of your stories, internet brains. And you say there's a debate over if the internet, with all of its almost uncountable switches, is making us smarter or dumber. Some will say that the internet is making us smarter. Uh, We have access to all of this information. We can watch a TED Talk and be up to date with the latest and greatest. But there's others who say that we don't necessarily... Uh, become smarter with the internet because the way that we use it doesn't necessarily make us smarter. A lot of us play games and and although all that information is available to us, uh, we're not using it. Also, because of the way the information is presented to us, a bit of information here, another bit of information there, things that aren't necessarily linked, this is allowing us to be more scattered in terms of the information that we have. So when I am doom scrolling <laughs> and getting all these headlines and not even reading past them, and I'm seeing all these memes and all these videos and all these everything, my brain isn't taking that information and storing it the way I would if I were, say, remembering my home phone number from when I grew up. Yeah, Right, right. Or if you were reading a book, if you're reading a book, you're in that world. 
you're in the deep end of the pool. But the internet is more like a wading pool on the shallow side. You're getting a little bit of that. You know, there's an advertising for this. You're getting something from over here. And all that gets collected and goes into your brain. And now your brain has to make sense of that. Some people think that this is not necessarily going to make us very, very smart. So there's definitely this debate about how the internet is uh, shaping us. Is it making us smarter or is it not? I kind of lean, because I guess I'm of an older generation, I miss my old brain, which could be on the deep end of the pool and have deep thoughts, jumping around on different platforms of social media. I definitely feel a little bit more exhausted than I used to. And it also affects our creativity if we're not able to really steep in those and those thoughts and also take the time away from all this reading and going for a walk and trying to observe. If you don't do that for yourself, then these deep thoughts won't be creative thoughts either. And then and then what? That's right. I mean, there's some people who say, well, we'll be more creative because we have more access to the world. But others will say, look, you need to have time to simmer. You know, if you have a free moment, you're on your computer or you're on the internet. And if you want to be creative, you actually need to pause. You need to give your brain some time to simmer, to be a little fallow so that it can come up with new ideas. So although the internet could make us particularly more creative, the way we use it is not necessarily making us more creative. Which is why so many people come up with great ideas in the shower, as long as they don't have like a waterproof iPad in the shower. <laughs> exactly. Don't bring your iPad to the shower. Bad idea. Just sit on down. Just sit on that was Dr. Anissa Ramirez, author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. After the break. There's so many ways to be a scientist, and we need all of those different ways. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Dr. Anissa Ramirez is our guest today, and she's the author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Over the course of eight chapters in her book, you meet these all-too-human inventors who maybe enjoyed an oversimplified chapter of your schoolroom textbook, and you meet many who never made it to your textbook at all. One of the things that I love about this book is how she reveals the serious flaws of the inventors who made these huge contributions to our world. I asked Anissa why it was important to expose their foibles and follies and curly mustaches. <laughs> yeah, I had a thing for mustaches in the, <laughs> in the book. Is this a walrus mustache or a handlebar? <laughs> had to do a lot of research on that. I wanted to share with people in The Alchemy of Us human stories. You know, the demographic of the inventors, the demographic is certainly limited. But we're all human and we all have flaws. We all have things that make us eccentric. And so I wanted to highlight that so that we can resonate. When we think about genius, we feel, oh, I can't do that. That person's so smart. That person is brilliant. I can't do that. But if you find out, oh, you know, they have, you know, they're very, very clumsy. Well, all right, he's, he's, he doesn't seem that far removed from me. I wanted people to feel like they could have access to innovation because the way that we're writing about innovation and creativity, I think it's really 
causing a gap where people don't feel like it's for them. And we're at a critical time where we need people to feel more connected with technology. And so I thought that one particular bridge would be to show the humanness of those who made technologies so that people will feel included as well. As I was reading The Alchemy of Us, I couldn't help but notice the intersectionality of all these inventions and all these stories. Like my fiance would ask, how's reading the book going? And I'd say, well, there's this chapter about the evolution of photography. Well, then that overlaps with light and lighting and how it's affecting fireflies. And it definitely affects her because she works in a neonatal intensive care unit. So she's inside all the time. So she should definitely take walks in the morning to get the blue light. And hey, walks in the morning also help with resetting all the switches in your mind. And speaking of the morning, did you know how we used to sleep before clocks? How loud in your mind were all these overlaps as you were writing this book? And how did you focus these chapters? I think now that the book is in the world, all that gelling can happen. Because when I was writing the book, I'm like, okay, we're on chapter four. And we need to learn as much about my bridge and Goodwin and Caroline Hunter as possible. And get that chapter together. And make sure that that chapter tells a story where this technology shaped us. And then having eight of them, eight examples of how a technology shaped us together, they kind of simmer together where you can see this broader cross-section. But when I was writing it, I couldn't see it that way. I was too close to it. I was like, I have to focus on this one chapter. But now that I can step away, I'm like, oh, look at that. And look, oh, wow. Uh, So I'm happy and excited for the readers because they're going to experience this information differently than how I experienced it. I want to talk about the job of the scientist, because another takeaway from your book is that you know, these inventions and these innovations aren't islands. They're, they're shoulders on which we stand, sometimes shakily, but they're also sometimes mm-hmm. reckless or mm-hmm. not thought through, or like the, the development of film, they reflect racist defaults, and mm-hmm. they're results of how our systems include some and leave some out. So I wonder how you hope scientists embrace their job description because their job is to solve problems, right? But not necessarily just the problem that's immediately in front of them. Yeah. Well, it's a little difficult because scientists are interested in that challenge. They have this small slice that they need to solve. And that is so exciting. Uh, You may think of it as minutia, but there's so much to do to understand how this effect happens. And when they do this will fit into a larger puzzle that will help with a larger understanding. And so that's how they're thinking about it. And maybe there's a direct application. Oh, this will help me with this larger project. But most of the time, they're not looking that far up. They're looking really, really at fine details. Corporations, companies, they're looking to build projects. And so that's the reason why I wrote The Alchemy of Us. We have two perspectives that are not really looking at how things impact society. And so we as citizens must have this kind of awareness so that we can curtail and guide technology because people who are making it aren't thinking about it that way. And and, and it has nothing to do with any kind of deficiency. This is scientists have to have that level of attention to do what they're doing. But what I hope is that in reading The Alchemy of Us, some of them will consider, oh, I wonder where this technology is going to be used. Maybe I can put some guidances or make some decisions early on to make sure that it's not used in bad ways. I hope that that happens. Have you seen Black Mirror? I haven't. I I am coming from a five 
year hole. <laughs> what and you I'm haven't like, what? Who? <laughs> uh, what you said reminds me of Black Mirror, the Netflix series. And it's called Black Mirror because if you look at your phone when it's at rest, it's a black mirror. And it's also mirroring what our technology is saying about us and the society we're developing. Um, each episode stands alone. It's a lot like The Twilight Zone, but the creator of the series, Charlie Brooker, has said that uh, all the episodes are about the way we live now and the way we might be living in 10 minutes' time if we're not careful. So when people say stuff like, you know it would be cool if we had contact lenses that recorded everything that we see? And you think, yeah, that would be kind of cool. But then Black Mirror takes that idea and runs through how indeed it would be cool, but also it would be a total nightmare. And it also focuses a lot on the concept of justice. And so you combine justice and technology and things get, you know, really scary really quickly. And it it's ultimately so disturbing and addictive because it shows that we have a moral obligation to be cautious and to try to look beyond this immediate invention and into what it may do to our species, not only physically, but psychologically, spiritually, socially, things things can get really scary really quickly. <laughs> real real scary. That in fact that's the next book that I'm looking at into oh, really? right now. Oh yeah. I stumbled onto a lot while I was writing The Alchemy of Us. I was like, ooh, oh, ooh. All right, you can't fit in this book, but we'll put you to the side. So I'm working yeah. on that now. So we have to talk about the perception of science in this era. I know that this is not the first time in our history that people have scoffed at science. I mean, if Galileo could talk, no, I mean, but these days, this hindering of scientific development, this questioning of scientifically proven information is really, really hurting people, a lot of people. So how are you seeing things? And how does it feel as a scientist right now? We live in a very anti-science world, anti-intellectual world. Uh, some of that is being buttressed with the way that we teach science, the way that we present science, the way scientists present themselves about how people should know science. And so I wrote The Alchemy of Us. I could have taken a different approach. I could have told you everything about steel. I could have told you everything about copper. That's what a lot of my colleagues in the sciences like to do. I decided when I wrote The Alchemy of Us, I would give you just enough to feel included. That's all you need. And scientists have a tough time making that, that leap. They also require that you go to them. And what I did in The Alchemy of Us is go to where people are. I meet people where they are. And so there's a lot of habits that aren't serving us right now if we really want to make sure that science literacy increases. Uh, but yeah, we're really in prop. We're in we're in trouble. We're really in trouble. I try and remain hopeful because you have to be hopeful. You have to do your work, and my work is to communicate science. And so I work hard to do that. I try and encourage people that they need to take a new approach. You know, we also live in a very political time where somehow science has gotten wrapped up in politics because people want to pursue their civil li liberties. I think if we explained what's going on, particularly in this pandemic, science a little bit better. That when you do this, this impacts other people. We really didn't really do the, as good a job because we we'll, we were just overwhelmed. But now we could if we if we tried, but it's, you know, I think that uh, people are really committed to not listening because it's just so political. Um, so going forward, scientists have to meet people where they are and they have to explain things in a way that's understandable to them. 
And this is what I tried to model in The Alchemy of Us. And if we can do that and you reach leaders in different groups and they spread the information, this can help us turn the corner. But uh, as we are right now, we're doing the same thing and we're expecting different results. And as a science evangelist, you're hoping to create more science evangelists and more science evangelists. So to people who are at the cusp of a scientific career or young people who aren't even thinking about a career but are lit up at the sight of a, of a microscope or magnifying glass or, you know, are hearing <laughs> three, two, one contacts theme in the show and thinking, ah, my heart skips a beat. What words of wisdom do you have for them? How should they be seeing these opportunities in science? I would say that there's many ways to become a scientist. One of the things I struggled with is that I thought being a scientist was a person that had to be in a laboratory because that's what I was taught. Professors are teaching you to be professors. There's so many ways to be a scientist and we need all of those different ways. We need people who know science in so many different fields so that we can move forward in the world and create a future where everyone feels included. So uh, if you love science, great. There's plenty of us who love it too. There's so many ways to do it. Find the way that works for you. That was Dr. Anissa Ramirez, science evangelist and the author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. You can see all of her work at anissaramirez.com. That's A-I-N-I-S-S-A, ramirez.com. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org slash audacious. And you can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. Thank you.